Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Our guest today is uh, Dr. Ruth Bush. She's the Associate Dean for Medical Education at the University of Houston. Uh, she previously um, held the position of Vice Dean for Academic Affairs at uh, Texas A&M uh, Health Sciences Center, and she's the Director of the Vein Center at Scott & White, and she's the Chief of Vascular Surgery at the VA Hospital in Temple. Dr. Bush completed her medical training at the University of North Carolina, followed by a general surgery residency at the University of California, Davis, and a vascular fellowship at Emory. So after that, she completed her master's in public health in 2005, and as if that weren't enough, she went on to law school and got her law degree. Dr. Bush, thank you so much for being with us to talk about this important topic on Behind the Knife. Well, thank you very much for having me. I very much appreciate it and appreciate you bringing this topic to the forefront. I, uh, a little disclosure, I did go to law school, which was very significant in my life. However, I uh, have not set for any bar and I ha do not practice law. That being said, I have given numerous talks, grand rounds, and, and offer advice, though I'm not charging for it, um, as uh, on issues related to malpractice and ways that uh, physicians can put themselves in the best light going forward and try to avoid uh, unpleasant, the unpleasantness of lawsuits. So just to get started, we like to hear a little bit about, you know, what, what kind of led you to where you are. So where are you from? Why did you go into medicine in the first place? Why surgery? Why vascular? And then I guess why, what led you to pursue your MPH and your law degree? Uh, sure. Um, I, I will try to keep this short. I, uh, pursued med medicine similar to uh, many reasons uh, that we all do. We we like science and, and helping people. That being said, it wasn't until I got to medical school and did a surgical rotation that I, I felt my true calling. I really enjoyed surgery. I enjoyed being able to uh, help patients get better uh, more quickly and to be able to see the results of what I did. I liked the fast paced. I liked vascular because it, uh, to me, it, it's a very logical field. I enjoyed, I'm one of the few people who enjoyed physics in uh, undergraduate uh, education. And uh, it, when I started learning vascular and the hemodynamics, uh, that resonated with me and made sense. I also enjoy the longitudinality of the patient-physician relationships that I get with uh, patients who have vascular diseases. Um, I ended up going to law school uh, later in life. In fact, I just graduated in 2013. Uh, my main impetus was at the time I was overseeing a lot of medical students and residency programs, and I realized that Besides a couple of ethics courses in medical school where you talk about cases that make the headlines of newspapers, most uh, students and residents actually don't get a lot of training on malpractice uh, and basically ways to stay out of trouble and what to do when, when adverse events do happen. We would like to now begin our segment called Dissection of the Day. And to start off, we would like to talk about why uh, medical malpractice, like what 
how did we get here? And uh, when did the field of surgery and um, medicine become so litigious? You know, I think with the the uh, increase in uh, number one, the number of lawyers in this country, uh, as well as the also the increased armamentarium of, of procedures and treatments that we have for patients, uh, people want a better outcome. People want um, they also have very high expectations of their physicians. They have very high expectations of their outcome. They should. You don't go to a doctor you know, thinking it's uh, not going to work out. However, unfortunately, there's not always someone to blame. And I think a lot of the times uh, cases do arise because patients do want someone to take responsibility. So, Dr. Bush, you, you mentioned that you, you know, do a lot of speaking regarding this topic at various ground rounds. Uh, if you could just kind of give us, you know, uh, I know it's a broad topic, but what are your, your biggest pieces of advice? What do you tell people? What do you tell surgeons who are maybe new to this? We don't receive a lot of training of this when it comes to medical school or residency. What's important for people to know? You know, what has been your personal um, experience with, with malpractice? Where do we start? Sure. I think I think the place to start, and that's a very good question, is where do we start? Is I think we need to um, uh, differentiate between what is myth and what is fact. I think there's a lot of bad press, uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the media uh, is where, and social media as well as um, either online or printed media is where people get their information, and the. What makes the news are isolated incidents that are are uh, adverse events or bad bad cases, if you will, and it gives the bad, the impression that most medical uh, malpractice lawsuits are frivolous. What the press doesn't see and what they don't report because it's it's not interesting is the thousands of heroic, fabulous things that doctors do every day every day, whether it's taking a patient a warm blanket, doing a great operation, changing a medication, or or just being kind. Um, that doesn't make the news. So uh, I think, again, we need to get back to what is myth and what is fact. I think, again, most medical malpractice lawsuits are frivolous. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That is a myth. Uh, people think that lawyers are these greedy ambulance-chasing people who are behind most medical uh, lawsuits. And that they're targeting any doctor, not just dangerous doctors. I think that the another myth is that the motivation for filing a malpractice claim is money. That people just want money. Doctors or the lawyers just want money. So I think again, we got to get back to what is myth and what is fact. And most of what I just said are are myths. Why do we need to know about this? It's because malpractice insurance premiums are skyrocketing. They have skyrocketed. There has been some tort reform. Uh, in some uh, uh, states that limits punitive uh, <clears throat> uh, damages. However, malpractice premiums can be very high. Uh, the reason for some of the tort reform is some of the exorbitant malpractice awards that you hear about, um, people getting millions of dollars uh, for different uh, claims. I think our high societal expectations, as I mentioned before, are definitely a reality that we live in. Um, I think the negative press, again, the one case out of thousands that you see, that increases public fear. And also that fear leads to distrust of physicians. And I think we have to be particularly um, attuned to the growth of information, the wealth of information, how we find that information, as well as medical technology. 
You touched on a few things that we'll dive into as we go along here, but you know, as you talked about, there's this mistrust of, of, of by the patients of physicians. But on the flip side, what have you seen, or what do you know of the effect that this fear of litigation has on physician or surgeon care of patients? Well, that's a very that's a very good question, and it's a uh, one that has a very uh, probably complicated and challenging answer. I know that you all are aware that a lot of tests or uh, imaging procedures uh, or imaging uh, is done to uh, sort of make sure that every base is covered, that every possible diagnosis is considered, that physicians aren't missing something. I think oftentimes we practice according to our fear of being uh, of some type of uh, malpractice litigation rather than what we know to be true. For example, a patient comes into the emergency room with right lower quadrant pain that's developed over the past 24 hours. It started at the umbilicus located uh, in the um, right lower quadrant. Patient's been febrile. It's got a low white count. 30 years old, what's the diagnosis? Acute appendicitis. What do we do? We get an ultrasound and then a CT scan. That's thousands of dollars on top of a bill when everyone on this phone call knows what that diagnosis is. Is that the right thing to do or is the right thing to do to say we've made a diagnosis, we recommend an operation and and go forward with it? I think that oftentimes, again, we, we practice based on... Uh, our, our fear as physicians, and especially as surgeons, um, because we are proceduralists, of getting sued. And people are afraid of getting sued. And so they, they practice uh, very conservatively, um, order too many tests, uh, do too many di- use too many diagnostic tools. I, I think I would add on to that that, and, and you may be able to back, you may be able to, to kind of refine, you know, with, with some data that I'm not aware of. But um, you know, I've, I've heard at least anecdotally about uh, from people who've been practicing for a long time that the not in addition to the number of tests that are going up, the number of referrals. So we're, you're, we already have a stress system where primary care is overrun and specialty services are overrun. But now because of fear of litigation, we're seeing a, a, a spike in the number of referrals. So it's already it's stressing that already stressed you know medical system in America. I'm not sure if you've experienced that or, or heard about that or know any data behind that. Well, I um, I don't know any uh, specific data behind it, so I don't want to misquote anything. But you are correct. Uh, when somebody comes in, for example, to a, a primary care doctor, a family doctor with, uh, I'll just use my specialty, vascular surgery, which is simple, lower extremity claudication, you know, pain that occurs in their calves when they walk a couple blocks. It goes away when they sit down and rest. They they may or may not start them on appropriate um, medication to protect their heart. Uh, As we know, peripheral arterial disease is a surrogate marker for heart disease, but rather than that, they will go ahead and refer the patient to a vascular specialist. They'll refer the patient to a cardiologist and, and not manage the patient. At that point, the patient does not need surgery. They don't need a cardiologist. They've had no cardiac event. They've had no lower extremity event. They could be managed by their primary care doctor. So I think that's one scenario that is, uh, 
what you're describing. The patient then has been sent to two expensive referral doctors uh, rather than just being managed by the primary care doctor. And I think the more referrals do stress the system, system and it is also very expensive. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, I, I recently watched this. I'm not sure if, you, if you've if you seen it. On Netflix, there's this documentary called The, the Cutting Edge where they talk about these, these new technologies, robotic surgeries, some different meshes, uh, some of the different lawsuits and everything that has come out of this with adverse effects. Uh, how do you, how do you, you know, as a field, we're we're moving more and more rapidly with these technological advancements. Some of things we don't have long-term data on, but we still feel that it's probably maybe the best thing for the patient. Do you have any advice for how to have these conversations with patients to avoid uh, maybe some legal pitfalls? Well, I think I think you're going to you're you're getting back to one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves to begin with is why do patients sue? Why do patients make claims to begin with? So patients may have a need for money. If they're out, they have a complication after, say, a robotic operation or something like that. They may need money because their home is in foreclosure or they can't pay their bills. Or uh, they may be concerned with the standard of care. Did you offer them the right operation? But one of the main reasons that people sue is communication. They think something's being hidden from them or being kept from them. And so patients will have these in intense emotions that can affect their work, their family, their social life. Uh, they think that someone's been insensitive. Uh, they've had poor communication. You don't have to be, you know, Holstead or Michael Tabakey um, and have those types of outcomes to have good physician-patient relationships. But patients also want someone to be accountable. They want someone to answer for that. And so I think with some of the newer technologies, one, that's, it's absolutely wonderful that we have these great, more minimally invasive ways to treat patients, uh, particularly in my field of vascular surgery with all the uh, minimally invasive procedures, endovascular procedures. Um, there's the field of robotic uh, surgery, which allows the surgeon to have better vis visualization but it's also not a magic bullet. And I think that that is one thing that it does take time in talking with patients is you may not be a candidate for this. And it's, it's figuring out what the language is to tell a patient um, that what the best solution for them is going to be. And that's, again, you get back to the trust issue and you get back to the communication. All of that takes time and it takes time to build that relationship. And we don't have a lot of time. Surgeons are impatient by nature. Uh, uh, building those relationships is not necessarily one of the reasons we went into surgery to begin with. And so I think it's uh, those are skills that have to be recognized, and they're skills that people have to recognize are valuable uh, to learn because I think what you're getting to is is communication and really talking with your patients and spending time talking to them and perhaps asking them, what did you just hear me say? You know, rather than whenever we consent patients for a procedure, we give them a litany of things. You know, if you ask the patients after that, now what did I just tell you? Usually what we say is, do you have any questions? And their eyes are sort of rolling around in their head and they're like, uh, no. Really, do they really not have any questions? Um, so I think very long-winded answer, but uh, we're getting back to communicating with your patient. My follow-up question for you was, um, 
we often hear our faculty talk about, you know, operative technique or uh, post-op patient management in a very defensive manner, where we are kind of taking images at certain points of the operation. We're performing IOCs routinely, you know, keeping patients for a certain amount of time in the hospital, doing labs post-op, even if they are not warranted. And all of this is to kind of prevent a litigation. How much of this is actually relevant to the legal world? Do do the lawyers actually, like the things that we are doing, these extra steps that we are doing in order to take care of our patients, are they looking at all these things? Not necessarily. So what you're, um, I think what you're getting to is what is the standard of care? And we used to talk about what's the community standard of care? Well, now with the internet and, um, everything being online, it's basically a national standard of care. So you as a surgeon, as a practicing surgeon, needs to make sure that you know, you're not going off in the wild and, and, and doing something unusual. I don't necessarily think you need to practice de- defensive medicine. You need to practice smart medicine. And if smart medicine is evidence-based and you're following guidelines and you're following what you were trained to do, I think doing all those extra things, keeping patients in the hospital another day, oh, we just want to check the INR one more time, it's not really going to make a difference. If the patient is going to have a complication, um, they're going to they're going to have it whether you keep them in the hospital one more day or or do one more test. You need to make sure that you are well trained and that you are practicing within your skill set and you are practicing procedures that you are comfortable with your outcomes. I think surgeons need to know their outcomes. They need to know uh, what their own data shows. And if it shows that your stroke rate after a carotid endarterectomy is higher than the national average, then perhaps you need to have some more training or stop doing that operation. Um, But I don't think that doing an extra, you know, IOC or doing an extra lab test is going to matter. and, And the defense lawyers really actually don't care. What they might use is if the patient does have a problem, well, doctor, do you think that uh, if you kept the patient in the hospital another day, this wouldn't have happened? Whether they sleep in the hospital or they sleep in their own home, I honestly don't think it matters. Uh, Shreya mentioned something kind of interesting there. And uh, as we see more and more operations being recorded and more and more intraoperative photos, are you aware of that ever making it into the courtroom? Do physicians, do surgeons need to be concerned about that? Or are, should they be, is that a good way, is that a good defense to, you know, take pictures of the critical view of safety, to have a recording of the operation and say, look, this is it, this is the way it looked at the time. Has that ever made it in the courtroom or do you see a time where that's going to be important? I could only see a time where that might, a recording might um, not be used in your favor. I am not a fan of anything in my uh, operating room being recorded uh, photographed or or anything else. In fact, after going to law school, I don't allow anyone in my operating room who has not met the patient ahead of time. I don't care if it's the hospital administrator, it's the joint commission, it's a medical student. If you have not met my patient and they don't know that you're going to be in there while they're asleep and exposed and cut open, then uh, you're not allowed in the operating room. I definitely do not want any recording devices. I think I think that that also puts a lot of pressure on the physician who is there, who needs to be focused on the patient that they're operating on and not on a camera or not on um, other people. So a lot of people do record. I mean, are, are you aware of any precedent that's been set with that? 
Oh, um, I am quite sure that if, if some uh, lawyer knew that you were recording, it might be admissible. You also need to make sure that you're recording with that patient's consent. And then, you know, there might be there might be some issues uh, with regards to any type of chain of evidence or uh, uh, tampering of the recording and whether, again, whether or not it's admissible. So, so Dr. Bush, on the same note here, as far as operative descriptions go, I've heard different things from different attendings on whether you want to be extremely detailed or really just say the relevant points. But out of concern for potential future litigation, do you have any recommendation to people that are dictating their operative reports to whether they should be more detailed or less detailed and how that's viewed by the courts? I don't know that more details are going to be viewed negatively. I was always taught and what I teach is is describe what you see, um, describe what, what led up to the operation, the indications for the operation, the consent process, and then the relevant points of the operation and what you found. Uh, for example, every book's going to tell you to sew in an aortic graft or an abdominal aortic aneurysm using a 2 or 3 proline. Nobody cares about that. They want to know, did you look at the liver? Did you miss a metastatic cancer that the patient has? Did you examine or look at the small bowel, look in the pelvis, miss any anything that's going on. So I've always taught residents and fellows, uh, describe what you see, describe what the findings are. Everyone knows how to put a wire up in aorta to do uh, some type of stenting procedure. Just describe what you see. If the vessels are heavily calcified and you had difficulty maneuvering the wire, describe that you had difficulty maneuvering the wire and you had to do use extra catheters to get the wire up these heavily calcified uh, blood vessels. Um, I think an operative note is no time to to be a hero and say, oh, everything went entirely smoothly and I was perfect in what I did. Describe describe what happened. And if, and if something untoward did happen, put that in the operative note. The last thing you want is for something to be left out. And then you get asked, doctor, did you not think that that was important to include in the operating note? So be be very honest in those. Nobody is going to fault you for being too detailed, but they will fault you for being too short and perhaps leaving things out. So another thing, touching on what you've discussed, so with the advent of the electronic medical record and with this movement towards patient-centered care, it's prompted this idea of transparency. And, you know, for example, at my institution with uh, my chart, we recently implemented that patients can see the radiology reports, they can see their pathology reports, they can see their labs, and they can now see outpatient clinic notes. And I think the plan is to move towards being able to see inpatient notes as well. And there's a lot of, you know, concern about patients, you know, misunderstanding what is written in the notes and how it's going to affect how we chart, which is already a laborious task. So I was wondering if if you are aware of whether this has affected how, because um, nobody talks about it in the light of, you know, malpractice litigation. So is this something that's going to affect that? Has it affected it already or is it too soon to tell? Uh, I think I think that's a very good question. I don't also think it's a very probably a very uh, intense question and loaded question for many people because you know we're going to have to walk the fine line between being transparent 
and and letting patients' medical records belong to the patients versus uh, getting questioned for different things that are written or perhaps, uh, which has come up where I work, being asked to change the record because someone doesn't like the way something was phrased. But, you know, on the good side, patients can see things. And if, uh, you know, a, for example, a, something got missed, uh, you know, a chest x-ray report got lost in the hundreds of alerts that physicians receive every day uh, and the patient happened to see it, that that would be a good thing uh, for the patient to make sure that follow-up is, is happening. On the other hand, it could also raise some questions on why why the alerts weren't being looked at. I don't see I don't see the electronic medical record going away. In fact, I see it being very cumbersome uh, for practitioners. I think it's too early to tell about the transparency. There are good parts of it. There are bad parts of it. It's it'll be interesting to see where it all shakes out. I know I'm not necessarily answering your question, but I think I think it's a little. It's a little too early to tell. Um, I can't imagine that it would not affect litigation in the future, but I, I don't know that for a fact. So, Dr. Bush, I, I appreciate your insight into all of this. I've finished you know, medical school, general surgery training, and now I'm in vascular surgery training. And I have yet to ever hear anyone talk to me about malpractice other than to, you know, you know, be extremely careful and et cetera, et cetera, but nothing to the actual details of it. And I'm wondering, can you just to the kind of the general audience out there, like whether you're a private practice surgeon, academic surgeon, like is this stuff you have to go out and buy yourself? Is it normally in the contract that you have with the hospital? If you do have to buy it yourself, how much and and kind of how this all factors into your future kind of uh, decision making as far as contracts? Well, that's a, what you bring up is a very good point because I think when people are negotiating contracts, um, rather, whether they go to work for the VA hospital, which is where I currently am, or they work at a private hospital, which is where I have been, or a public uh, facility is, you know, the onus is on you as the physician to make sure that you are covered and figure out how you're covered. And if something happens, who is going to represent you? There's very few people who go into uh, private solo practice anymore. Most people either join a group or they become hospital employed um, at this point because of, of some of the expenses related to just owning a practice and for malpractice. I think that it's very important for fellows and residents Uh, and this is one of the reasons I went to law school to learn some of these things, is to figure out how to protect themselves. And nobody teaches you that. They teach you be careful, document, um, do your charting, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You need to think of your medical degree as one of your assets. I think we talk to residents and students and and trainees about debt load and reducing their uh, financial burden, about not taking out loans, about you know, cars, houses, things like that, uh, whether or not you have a retirement account. But we don't teach you how to protect your most important asset, which is that license that you have. Because if you lose your license over one person or you can't, over one claim, you can't help all those other people that are out there. So we don't teach people what to do to stay out of trouble and what to do when when, uh, you do get into trouble. Again, this gets back to one of the main reasons I went to law school, because nobody teaches you any of this. They malpractice and lawsuits 
are this uh, sort of silent topic that we we don't talk about. Um, I, I think we're all superstitious. If we talk about it, it may happen. And it's actually just it's just information. It's similar to learning uh, a procedure or learning uh, complications afterwards. Is is you just need to know what could possibly happen and what some of the pitfalls are for uh, physicians in practice, whether you're a, a trainee or whether you are in practice. That I think that it is something that you do need to discuss with uh, your employer or your future partners. It needs to be upfront. What is my malpractice? What is the coverage? And people also need to, who's going to protect you? Who's going to defend you? And who's going to take care of some of the paperwork, if you will? And then one thing you also need to ask about and be cognizant of is tail coverage. The statute of limitations for filing a claim, a malpractice claim, varies from state to state, uh, anywhere from a couple years to the longest I've heard is seven years. So uh, you have to think about what, what type, and it also depends on what the claim is, what level uh, of claim was made. So you have to think about what tail coverage is. Um, one example, personal example, is I was in practice in Florida, and I moved to Texas. Uh, this is back in the early 2000s. Thank goodness I had tail coverage because a claim was brought up against me as soon as I moved for a case I had done six months prior to moving. Uh, you know, it was six months later, been you know within the statute of limitations. It took two years for that to even be resolved. I was long gone, but so but the tail coverage covered me and paid for uh, the legal representation for that entire time. How, do, how, do, how does the legal system view residents uh, as responsibility? Well, residents are in, residents are in a fine um, uh, sort of this gray area between being a learner and being an employee because residents do get a paycheck and you are employed by that hospital, but you're still in a training capacity. That being said, uh, when a case is going to be filed, uh, a claim is made, well, not a case, but a claim is made against a hospital. Every name that appears in that chart may be listed on that claim, including the residents. Residents will be covered under whatever hospital they're doing their residency at. Um, as long as you are acting within the scope of your residency, uh, uh, then you will be covered by that program. Now, if you go out and moonlight or, or do something else, uh, that's a whole different story. But if you're acting within the scope of the residency, you will be covered and you will be um, named. Now, that being said, you may be you may be called in a deposition. Questions may be asked of you. They're going to determine. Lawyers are going to determine how much how much responsibility, how much interaction you had, and whether or not you need to remain on that on that uh, witness list. If you're the primary person and you were doing an operation and and you're attending, Dr. Smith was sitting in the lounge, um, that would be a different case than if you're an intern, you know, who's the night float and you're checking laps. They're going to determine whatever your level of responsibility was. Uh, medical students can also be named. Uh, host, uh, medical schools have to carry malpractice on medical students. However, uh, there's really never been any cases that have been brought against medical students. Uh, so I have one question. So uh, with regard to, you know, like the larger issue 
Um, I mean, I think most people can agree that the degree to which there's uh, medical litigation in the United States is a little bit out of control. Are you aware of any of the larger societies, you know, the ACS or any of the surgical societies working on a, a larger level to to change this or make sure, I guess, just ensure that there's there's that this doesn't go unchecked, that the lawsuits that are happening are actually legitimate and that they're fair? And is there any effort to kind of protect the physician on the larger society level? Well, the efforts to protect the physician on the larger society level come down to education and educating the physicians. Uh, I was just part of a webinar uh, sponsored by the Society for Vascular Surgery a couple of months ago where we talked about medical legal issues. Uh, and it was a, it was a call-in webinar and we, we had a lawyer uh, on the call uh, along with the several different panel members. I was one of those pan panel members and people could uh, come in on the webinar and type in their questions and we would answer them. So I think educating uh, physicians is, is the key. In terms of uh, if you're talking about lobbying or doing things, if you look at how much, <laughs> how large the American uh, uh, Trial Lawyers Association is, it's, um, it's, it's fairly large compared to some of the surgical societies. So I think, I think learning how to protect ourselves, not being afraid to talk about uh, these conversations, not being afraid to uh, think about uh, any type of claims as being, as being a, a real issue. I think that that's right now is the crux of, of what we can do and what we are doing. Okay, so I, I think we've all known, I mean, I'm sure we've all known very good surgeons, very good physicians that have been sued. We work in an, an environment where bad things happen and you can do everything right and still have a bad mm -hmm. outcome. What's your advice to that person in that situation where maybe you've done everything right, maybe you haven't done everything perfectly, but you have a bad outcome? Most mm -hmm. people I know out there want to do the right thing, but have you noticed, what's your advice to that person to to keep themselves out of trouble and, and, and not make it worse and perhaps well it's 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 very hard and I, I I am no different than any other surgeon I've been in practice for a while I have had claims made against me um, it's 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 personally very painful because as you said people don't go to work saying I'm going to do a bad job today you go thinking you're going to do a great job you want to do the right thing you want to take care of mankind and bad things happen things People don't follow the textbooks, whether it's your fault, their fault, a combination of, of just the perfect storm, uh, things are going to happen. One of the hardest things, I think, for physicians is to, is to become defensive, to, to blame yourself, to say, I'm never going to do that operation again, to sort of back away um, from medicine or become very defensive. I don't know that those are the right actions. So it, we take it very personally. I mean, we, we don't just practice surgery. We are surgeons, and that's near and dear to the core of our being. So something happens. It is very hard to, to not take it personally and to keep moving on and to treat every patient. So my advice uh, to folks is do simple things. Number, number one, try to stay out of trouble. Remember that if you don't write something down and, and if you don't write it down, it didn't happen to a, in, in, in the legal world. It doesn't matter if you thought it. it. It doesn't matter. So 
people need to write things down and take the time to write their thought processes, not just their conclusions, not just this patient has a large aneurysm, needs an operation. Why? It's at this, you know, whatever percent chance of rupture, it's grown rapidly, something. Um, why are you making the conclusion? Uh, one of the reasons is also for yourself. As I mentioned, my claim, claims can t- be made months, even years from the actual care. Uh, you may have no clue who that patient was who made a claim three years ago and not remember them at all. So that's, that's one thing. So I think you can be saved by some of your dictations. I think people can also be smart, understand the legal processes, understand what the different uh, standards are, understand, um, understand some of the uh, legal terms. Uh, one of the things that when I do educational seminars for residents and trainees is I, I give them a law school 101, if you will, um, teaching folks legal terms. I also try to get them to understand what the difference between, say, you know, in vascular surgery, what's what's off-label use versus physician-modified devices. What's the difference and what, what do the courts see for that? Um, I think people also need not to be scared of patients making claims against them. You do the best you can. You have conversations with people. You will be surprised at someone who brings a claim against you uh, because you won't think it's your fault. You won't think anything happened. You'll actually be sort of angry that they did that. But I think if physicians can take a step back, not take it personally, not make it have it affect the other avenues of their life, uh, then you'll be in pretty good shape. With that, I think we, we will transition to our next segment. We call it the tips and tricks. And uh, we just ask more probing questions that might be a little bit controversial or challenging. Our first one for uh, you is if you're on a plane and they ask if there's a doctor on board, you respond. What sort of laws or things should uh, we keep in mind? Oh, that's a very tricky one because I'm quite sure it's either happened to everyone on this call or it will happen to everyone on this call. You know, at the end of the day, you're going to do the right thing and you're going to say, I am a physician. What can I do to help? You are protected when you're up in the air because then you're covered by federal aviation laws, um, not necessarily state laws. So it's uh, a little bit out of your hands because you're, you're covered by the friendly skies, if you will and protected under federal law. I have never heard of anyone in a plane um, getting sued. I'm sure I haven't read everything and there's probably, I could Google it and there's and there's a, a case, but people also have to remember a claim is not necessarily the same as uh, you having to go to court or do anything. People can make claims over everything, anything. So you would, so if-, if I would, else- absolutely. If, if people weren't doing it, you know, I, I would do it. I've had a guy having a heart attack. I've had a kid who passed out. I've had to put an IV and land, you know, in the in the galley on the floor. It's just what you do. You're going to do the right thing. Now, what about if you're a, if you're in that situation and you're a medical student? What are you going to do? You are not licensed to do anything. As a medical student, you are practicing as a good Samaritan. You're not a medical practitioner. You have to make that clear. It depends on how comfortable you are, if you've had ACLS, if you've had other things, but you cannot be a medical practitioner. That's helpful. I like, I, the reason we ask that is, uh, is yeah, we're, I, I think almost everybody's been in that situation and you're always kind of conflicted. Like, what do I do? Am I protected? So 
So that's that's uh, that's very helpful. With that, we're almost out of time. So let's move on to what we call our final five. These these questions are easier than those, I promise. So these are five questions we we ask most of our guests just to kind of get you to know you a little bit more on a personal level. So number one, is there somebody outside of medicine uh, who has been influential influential to your life and to your career? Uh, I am very fortunate that I've had a lot of great mentors and a, a lot of great role models. I would have to say the person who was most influential in my choosing medicine and my going into medicine is is my father. He is no longer uh, around. He died of a, a massive heart attack many years ago, but he uh, he is the one who has has been and was or was the most influential to me. Great. The next question is, is there any book out there that uh, you recommend um, to your trainees or uh, people that you work with as something that's been influential in your life? Well, I am someone who likes books and movies as, as complete escapes from reality. So, you know, we live, eat, sleep, and breathe um, medicine. So whenever I have an opportunity um, and I'm not going to directly answer your question, but whenever I have an opportunity to read a book or watch a movie, it has nothing to do with medicine. In fact, I do not watch medical shows on television. A, they 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 get it wrong, and it and it it uh, irks me. But um, I, I like to I like to listen and and read things that are completely different from what we do on a daily basis, and that's what I would recommend. Fantastic. Our next question. So during residency or during your training, was there some sort of go-to guilty pleasure snack or drink or something that kept you going? Besides chocolate? Well, I did residency a long while ago, but I would say uh, now uh, one of my go-to guilty pleasures, and I'll just admit this to you all, is I'm a binge TV watcher. I get on some Netflix series that's, you know, four seasons, and that's what I watch. I like I like a fifteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth century English Tudor history and I love I love movies about that. All right. Our next question for you. If you were to compete in the Olympics, what event would uh would you be participating in? It doesn't have to be something that you actually would, just <laughs> hypothetical. What event would I participate in? Well, it would have to be a summer event when the Summer Olympics because I can't stand to be cold. I have to tell you, I would want to be one of those long-distance runners, one of those folks that's doing the relay, one of the longer relays, and you're passing the baton. Number one, you're working with the team. You're working with some fabulous members. You've got folks you can train with, cry with, celebrate with. And you're also going really fast and you have 0% body fat. That's what I would do. Okay. Uh, last question. So if we were to look into your white coat right now, what would you find either on it, on the lapel, in the pockets? What's in your white coat? Well, I work for the University of Houston. So I've got a little pin on there that says UH. Not to brag about my school. Um, in my pockets are going to be... Uh, uh, I don't like a lot of stuff because in my pockets because I don't like my coat to be weighted down. So I'm 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 very much of a minimalist. I'm going to have a uh, a little bit of money so that I can always grab a cup of coffee at whatever coffee shop I'm passing in the hospital. Uh, you're going to find, sorry, uh, guys and ladies, you're going to find two different shades of lipstick depending on what I'm wearing, and a pen. That's about it. That's all I carry. Some business cards if I remember them. Well, Dr. Bush, thank you very much for joining us today and answering some of these questions for us. 
I hopefully this has enlightened our audience. Stay tuned for a bonus 10 minutes featuring an international surgeon who also has a law degree. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. As part of our medical malpractice series, we have with us Dr. Rolando Pinchetti to talk about surgical malpractice abroad. Dr. Pinchetti is a general surgeon in Argentina, and he recently obtained his Juris Doctorate in 2017. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Pinchetti. Uh, uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Good afternoon for all of you. I wish to greet and thank the entire BTK team for this opportunity and to express my greetings to all your followers in the social media. Why don't you just start off with telling us about why you ended up obtaining your JD and how you're using that law degree now? Yeah, um, for 20 years, I exercised mainly GI and hepatobiliopancreatic surgery. Then, uh, for another 10 years ago, I developed professionally in the field of public health and particularly in everything related to regulatory and health issues. Now I am officially a lawyer for one year ago, but and I am specializing in health law and medical responsibility, but my job was uh, mainly uh, issues related to medical responsibility and uh, health uh, regulatory issues. So how does the field of, you know, uh lawsuits in medicine, how does it compare in Argentina um, to the United States? Are there limits on how much patients um, can get in lawsuits? Is it Do, do most pr- uh, practitioners have to have malpractice insurance? And just in general, how litigious is this uh, Argentinian society? Yes. Um, if you allow me, I would like to elaborate at first a brief overview of the judicial organization of my country, particularly in relation to the application of civil law. In Argentina, as in the vast majority of Latin countries, the codified law system is in use, which differs from the common law system in various aspects. According to this, the laws and current regulations in uh, what's about medicine are written, they are universally applicable. The judge has enough but also limited powers in the interpretation and application of the law, statutes and specific professional regulations, and the sentences are limited to the facts that have been effectively proven during the trial. Also, juries are not in use in civil trials. Uh, There are both unique uh, civil and criminal codes But as a country with a federal organization, the proceeding codes are different in each of our 25 states. The first instance is always in charge of a single judge court, and the appeal is made before a court of three judges. In specific situations, there may be also an appeal before the state or national Supreme Courts. The maximum time for a person uh, to file a civil claim for damages is three years since the harm occurred. In uh, what's about uh, the civil liability, it is based on the existence of four fundamental requirements. First, the proven presence of an ascertainable and quantifiable damage, either in the life, health, and or property of a specific individual, a wrongful or unlawful act or omission, an appropriate causal link between the action or omission and the damage, And finally, an attribution factor that can be subjective or objective. An attribution factor is the sufficient legal reason why an individual or legal 
entity that has caused an injury must compensate the victim economically. The surgeon in particular assumes full responsibility for the entire team present in the OR during the performing of a procedure, usually excluding the anesthetist, the cardiologist, and some other occasional participants of the surgical act. The consequences of the damage are generally solidarily faced by the surgeon and the healthcare institution in which the procedure was performed. So during a trial for malpractice, the duty of proof lies mostly in charge of the surgeon and the healthcare, healthcare institution, since our judiciary doctrine uh, understands that both of them are in a better position to provide evidence than the plaintiff who has always to prove the existence and the extent of the damage. Uh, for instance, the medical records. Uh, the sentences usually express an economic compensation for damages through a specified amount of money, which the judge stipulates by himself according to the evidence provided and its interpretation regarding the extent and future consequences of the damage. This monetary compensation is originated in different ways and could be unique or calculated together. We name it consequential damage, loss of profit, moral damage, or and the loss of chance. Uh, going to the last available statistical data related to the medical civil responsibility, according to different sources, around 60 to 70 percent of the doctors will face some type of suit for damages throughout their professional life. Only 20 to 25% of those lawsuits are successful in the courts and only 7 to 10% of them end in the sentence against the doctor. Argentina, like other countries of the region, presents an uh, evident and sustained increase in the judicialization of medical activities in the last 30 years especially since the appearance of the obligation for professionals and health institutions to have compulsory insurance against lawsuits for malpractice, what has brought undesir undesirable consequences, what is known as the industry of medical lawsuit. Uh, although the, all the medical specialties are exposed in order or of highest to lowest, the ones that register the highest percentages of civil lawsuits are emergency medicine, traumatology and orthopedics, obstetrics, anesthesiology and surgery. And within surgery, the plastic cosmetic and reconstructive surgery, vascular surgery and hepatic and biliary surgery are at the top of the ranking. Uh, it is estimated that there are around uh, today 30,000 active court cases and the average financial claim of each is around 2 million pesos, that's about uh, $120,000, but many of them can reach 25 or 30 million pesos, uh, that's where is 1.2 or 1.3, uh, 1.5 million dollars, particularly in the medical specialties most demanded for a surgeon in Argentina, these are extremely important amounts if we take into account that the usual fees for a frequent surgery, such as a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, are around 500 to 800 dollars. Or the case of a classic inguinal hernioplasty that does not exceed uh, 200 dollars. That was a really excellent overview. Covered a lot of information there. That's interesting for us. 
So I was wondering, in addition to kind of you gave us the landscape of malpractice law, what do you guys have good Samaritan laws? And specifically, if you don't know, like here in America, if you help a patient on the sidewalk or on a plane or something, you're kind of covered by good Samaritan law. Is there something similar over there? No, there is no uh, such such thing here in Argentina. The surgeon, the me- the medical doctor in general, are uh, in most of the cases a victim. Uh, that's what I can say now. There are some projects of law uh, to change that, but um, till now that's the the problem we have. <laughs> uh, we are defenseless in some ways. Yeah. So, Dr. Pinchetti, uh, in closing here, can you give us your your final thoughts on the state of uh, medical malpractice in uh, South America? Um, well, I I speak in about Argentina. I know that in the rest of Latin America are similar situations, but I don't know them well, so I uh, limit myself to Argentina. Uh, there is, as I said, uh, an increasing, every year increasing industry, like I said. Uh, lawyers are waiting in the, in the bedrooms <laughs> or in the doors of the hospitals, waiting that uh, the relatives or the patient go out and give them a card and say, was it all good? Uh, was it uh, enough for you? Uh, if you are some complaint, come to my office and we can uh, sue the doctor without charges. And, uh, that, that is a really a severe problem for us as surgeons. And now for me as a lawyer too, because uh, I see both sides of the movie, uh, if I say it, uh, so, um, so, uh, so I think there there must be a change in the next years in this uh, issue, um, a change to protect better the prof- uh, professionals in uh, healthcare providers. Uh, so I I'm not really too glad to say all of this, but uh, it's. It is our reality now. Absolutely. And it's a similar reality we have here. And we appreciate the fact that you are trying to make change by becoming a lawyer yourself as a lawyer surgeon. I think that'll be critical in the future to helping um, change these laws uh, to protect uh, surgeons. So uh, thank you for what you do. Thank you for taking your time um, to join us in Behind the Knife with the extreme time difference. And um, give us your perspective. We really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you to you for this opportunity, uh, for the space that you have given me to share a brief summary of the reality of medical malpractice lawsuits in Argentina. Thank you again. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.